Well, welcome to Sojourn. It's good to gather with you today, this uh, last Sunday in February. Hope you've enjoyed some of the nice weather that we've had, uh, a little early spring visit for us, uh, and just had a good time being outside and joining God's creation, and hopefully just being encouraged this morning as we've sung together, had God's Word read over us this morning, uh, and now as we get into this time of preaching, as we open up to, as Eric said, our last week in the book of Jonah. And so if you need a copy of the Bible this morning, would you just raise your hand? We'll have a couple of guys bring a Bible around to you. We'd love to uh, have you read along with us out of God's Word. And so if you need one, just keep your hand up until they find you uh, so you can read along with us this morning. If you don't actually own a copy of the Bible, um, then please feel free to take that home with you. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have God's Word, not only this morning, but all throughout the week. But as we uh, begin our time, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless our time in Jonah this morning. Father, we give you thanks for the time we've had in your word over these last few weeks in this small book in the Old Testament. Just four short chapters, but chapters that are packed with truth that confronts the reality and the struggles of our own life. As we've seen throughout this series in Jonah, how much Jonah's life really is a mirror for our own lives, where we struggle with many of the same things that Jonah struggles with. And so Lord, we give you thanks that you've given us your word, your living and active word that speaks into our life. And so Lord, as we close up this sermon, as we, sermon series, as we finish today in this book, I pray that you would continue to do that work, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts this morning to receive what you have for us today. And Lord, we believe this is a gift to gather together as your people, to worship through song, to worship through the reading and preaching of your word. And we just pray that we would continue in that, that line, that, that step of worship this morning, that our hearts would be drawn into your presence, that we would be amazed that you, the God of all creation, care to know us, that you want to be in relationship with us, and you've made a way for that to be possible. And so we pray this morning that we would just be captivated by who you are and what that means for our lives. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you do a work through the preaching of your word this morning, not by something in particular that I say, but through the anointing of your spirit and the preaching of your word. Lord, we can't do anything apart from the empowerment that you give. And so we ask, plead with you to do that today and that you would change our hearts and our lives because we've been here gathering together as your people. And so we lift this time to you. We ask that you'd bless it. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I think one of the most fascinating things uh, in life is human language. I mean, if you really stop to think about human language, it's pretty amazing. All the languages that exist in our world right now, so many different languages to communicate thoughts and feelings and emotions and knowledge, so many different ways to do that, that it's almost uh, unimaginable, unimaginable to be able to even comprehend how many different ways there are to actually do that. But with learning a new language, some of us are good at that and some of us are not so good at that. I'm in the not so good category of learning language. It's not something that comes natural for me to do, but some people really grab onto new languages quickly. And there's a couple of different ways to learn new languages. We can learn just the basics of vocabulary and grammar, but then there's also the idea of actually learning, well, how do I actually have a conversation with someone who speaks that language? Kind of learning what it looks like to be more conversational. One of the most challenging things, though, in learning any language is having to learn to pick up on and understand idioms in that language. 
So an idiom is a saying or an expression whose meaning is not predictable from the usual use or definition of the words that are in that phrase. So here's a couple of examples, a few examples from English that are idioms. Raining cats and dogs. That's an idiom in English. Something that costs an arm and a leg. We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. I'm feeling under the weather. Or we can kill two birds with one stone. Now, if you're coming to America, you're seeking to learn English and hear some of these things, you might think, well, America's a weird place. Because that doesn't make sense if we don't understand the kind of the depth and meaning behind that. Well, in our text in Jonah today, we're going to see an idiom used, but we're also going to see an idiom on display. And the idiom we're going to see on display is this. You can't see the forest for the trees. You can't see the forest for the trees. What that means is that you can't see the big picture because you're too focused on the details. And that's precisely Jonah's problem in our text today. But more specifically, the details that Jonah is focused on are the details of his very own life. And the big picture that he's missing is what God is doing in God's story and his work in Jonah's life and in the world around him. Today, as we said, we're finishing up our sermon series in the book of Jonah. And we've looked into the life of this disenchanted follower, and we've seen a lot of things, a lot of struggles that Jonah has are struggles that you and I can have in our own lives as well. And so as we wrap up this series, my hope is is that God will use our time in his word this morning to help us once again to shake off the dust of disenchantment that might exist in our lives here and now. That he'd help us to embrace a majestic vision And that we will see this as a radical vision for our life and our church and our community and our world. Now, if you don't call yourself a Christian, let me first just say I'm glad you're here this morning. We're glad that you're here. But we hope that this is something you'll listen to as well, even if you're questioning who God is. Because our hope, our desire is that you will see this glorious life of what life with God looks like and that you'll join us as we journey together with him. And so may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. If you haven't already, you can flip open to the book of Jonah. We're going to be focusing primarily on verses 5 through 11 in chapter 4, but we're going to start reading this morning from chapter 3, verse 10, just to get some context about what's going on. This is what the book of Jonah says. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. 
Then he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. We come to the end of the story of Jonah, and over the last few weeks, what we've seen is that redemption and revival have come to the city of Nineveh, this wicked city, these wicked people who are an example of what an anti-God and self-exalting culture look like. They have no desire or interest in knowing God or following him until this revival comes. And we would expect that Jonah, being a prophet of God, a messenger of God, a missionary of God, would be elated over this, so excited over this. But as we saw last week and we read again this morning, Jonah's reaction is quite the opposite. He's angry. It says he's exceedingly displeased. He's furious. He even thinks what God has done in this moment is evil, that he would save these people. Jonah is resentful. He's resentful of God and of others. He resents God for being God. And he resents the people of Nineveh because of his own self-righteousness that he thinks he's more worthy of relationship with God than these heinous, wicked people. And so he has disdain for them. And so as we get into our text today, we pick up kind of midway in Jonah's sulking and pouting and complaining. And in this text, we see the difference between having a myopic vision to life and a majestic vision to life. A myopic vision and a majestic vision. Now, when we say the word vision, we hear that word used in the context of our world, whether it's an organization or a church. What are we talking about? What we're talking about when we say vision is why we exist and where we're going. Why we exist and where we're going. What are we here for? What are we made for? What's the goal that we're trying to achieve? The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a collection of questions that were written a long time ago to help us learn about God, learn about what it means to be in relationship with him. And so it's a series of questions and answers. And the very first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is kind of like a vision statement. The question is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's his purpose? Why does man exist? Why is humanity here? What is the goal of every person or what should it be? And the answer that is given is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we exist, is what the question and answer says. That's the purpose. It's what we're aiming for. We see some vision statements in the scripture as well. The greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all of your mind and your heart and your strength and your soul with everything about who you are to love God. And secondly, along with that is to love your neighbor as yourself, to love others more than you love yourself. That's a a vision for your life. The Great Commission is what the church, every single church, should be engaged in. That with Jesus as our head, Jesus as our King, our Lord, our Chief Shepherd, that we are called to go and have a lifestyle of going and making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and teaching them about what life with Jesus looks like. Now we can 
articulate in a bunch of different ways. We can use different words, different semantics, different phrases and sentences to share that vision, to communicate that vision. But really, every single church at the end of the day should have that as their purpose, to go and make disciples. All of us should be communicating that same concept and goal. And we have seen throughout this story in the book of Jonah that God is committed to the advancement of his global glory. But in this moment, in Jonah's life, in Jonah's story, what we see is a problem that all of us struggle with, and it's that Jonah doesn't have that vision for his life. He has a myopic vision. See, Jonah went out of the city after this revival had taken place, after he was told, after he told God that he would rather die than live. He would rather die than see revival take place. He is so upset that God is actually gracious. That God is actually merciful. He's actually slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to all kinds of people towards actual sinners. Jonah's upset with God about that. And so in our text, we find our disenchanted follower outside the city sitting down, waiting to see what would happen. See, in this moment, Jonah is still thinking, well, maybe God will still destroy them. Maybe the repentance isn't real. So I'm just going to hang out on the outside of the city, up on the hill, watching, hoping that judgment still comes to these people. But as we've seen throughout this story, God is a pursuing God. As much as he's pursuing the people of Nineveh, he's also pursuing the heart of his prophet. In these next few verses, we see how God seeks to teach Jonah again and pursues him and pursues his heart in, in the way that only God can. He comes after Jonah this, this hard-hearted Jonah, this hard-headed Jonah in a way that maybe, maybe Jonah will actually listen. And it's hot in Nineveh, and Jonah finds himself both physically and emotionally hot. And so he builds this, this thing called a booth, essentially just kind of a lean-to to bring some shades and bring some relief to him as he sits and waits for the hopeful destruction of Nineveh. But in verse 6, we see that God appoints a plant to grow and shade Jonah and to save Jonah from his discomfort. Man, is that God's grace in that? That here's this person, this prophet, this messenger of God who said, I'd rather die than live in Jonah. I mean, God still gives him this shade over his life. God has appointed many things before in Jonah's life. Just in this story, we've seen that God appointed the storm to come into Jonah's life. God appointed the fish to come and save Jonah's life. And now he appoints this plant to come up over him. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of plant this is. Many scholars believe it's some kind of broad-leafed vine or a castor oil plant. Now, I don't know anything about plants. Like my yard, if it has anything green in it, that's because we have somebody else come and help it be green. I don't have a green thumb at all. I don't know anything about how to make plants grow or really anything about plants at all. And so I looked up this week, I was like, what kind of, what is a castor oil plant? I don't even know what that is. And it's this tropical plant that it can apparently grow to over 10 feet tall in one season. It has leaves the size of dinner plates. It's a, it's a huge plant, it's a great plant for some shade. Now notice, this is God's grace to Jonah, but it's grace in a twofold manner. One, he sent the plant to ease Jonah's discomfort, even amidst his complaining, even amidst his resentment and anger. But secondly, he has sent the plant to address Jonah's heart. See, the end of verse 6 says that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
It's that same phrasing that was used at the beginning of chapter 4 where Jonah was exceedingly displeased with the Lord. The stark contrast between these two things is amazing that Jonah would be so glad over a plant, but so displeased, so furious, so anger at revival. And so Jonah decides to spend a night there under his lean-to in this glorious grand plant that the Lord has provided. But God had a greater plan and purpose for the plant in Jonah's life. Look at verses 7 through the beginning of verse 8 again. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. The worm and the wind come along, replacing Jonah's comfort with discomfort. And once again, Jonah is not happy. The end of verse 8 says, and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And so again, God asked Jonah a heart level question. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah says, yes, absolutely. Angry enough to die because the plant's not here anymore. I mean, what's going on with this guy? What's going on with him? That he gets so angry that he said he'd rather have his life taken away because the shade plant's gone. Now, we need to pay attention here because you and I can, again, throughout this whole series, we can step back and we can kind of just armchair quarterback this thing and criticize Jonah and pick apart his life. But this is another point where we need to enter into the story of Jonah because we can struggle with the same kinds of things. We face the same temptation. Jonah has a myopic vision. In a technical sense, to be myopic is to be nearsighted, being unable to see things unless they're relatively close to you. Metaphorically, to be myopic means to lack imagination or foresight. It's literally to lack vision for where you're going and why you're here. Jonah is myopic because all he can see is himself in this moment. His wants, his desires, his comforts. As one pastor says, Jonah is living a vine-centered life. A vine-centered person is one who is so taken up with the joy of God's gifts that he or she ends up loving the gifts more than the giver. See, Jonah had missed God in all of this. He'd forgotten about God in all of this. God was just this, this distant figure in his life that provided some comforts and pleasures in his life, but he forgot who God was. A vine-centered life is a life focused on personal comfort and personal gain and personal aspirations. And it's easy to live a vine-centered life when you have a myopic vision. If all we can see is right, what's right in front of us, if all we can see is our day-to-day lives made up of our wants and our desires, then it should make sense to us to why Jonah is so devastated over the destruction of this plant. It was his life. It's all he cared about in that moment. It was his most valued possession in the moment, and God took it away from him. See, there's a progression that takes place. When we live with a myopic vision, we have a vine-centered life, and this vine-centered life results in selfishness and self-focus. The only kingdom that matters to us is the kingdom of self, and the only glory we care about advancing is our own. And so Jonah here is frustrated over personal injustices, What he considers a personal injustice, he's frustrated, he's angry about that, the loss of a plant of comfort, instead of being frustrated, angry about things that actually matter, the souls and lives of thousands of people. When I was in college, uh, 
we, um, Amy and I were dating. We started dating uh, the beginning, kind of midway through our freshman year in college. We were at two different schools. And so we communicated most of the time via instant messenger. Some of you don't even know what that is. It's like pretexting, right? This is like before you could actually just message people back and forth on the phone. You sat down on a computer and sent messages back and forth to one another. And we didn't have cell phones. Um, we, if we did talk to each other, we used a calling card. If you've ever seen one of those, there's little plastic cards you can buy and you can call people on them. We didn't have that. So we would always instant message back and forth. And so in my dorm room, my sophomore year, uh, we, uh, my computer was there. I lived with three other guys and we didn't have wireless computers either. You actually had to plug into an ethernet port to get uh, on the internet. But for some reason, my, where my computer was, where it was plugged in, it, would, it was really spotty. The, the internet would come in and out all the time. And that was maddening to me when I wanted to talk to Amy, when I wanted to chat back and forth with her. And so I would get so frustrated. You would ask my roommates, like, man, he gets angry over the internet. I remember one time I got so angry as we're in the midst of this conversation talking and the internet drops out that I slammed my chair and threw it against the wall and put a hole in my dorm room wall. I was so angry about this little thing. And I can still struggle with stuff like this. I can get frustrated at the driver in front of me who's going too slow. I can get frustrated at the Ikea dowel rod or screw that won't quite fit into the hole it's supposed to. I can get frustrated over my kids when they won't do or what I'm asking them to do or listen to what I'm telling them. And, and, and I get so upset. But I have to realize, and you have to realize, that this anger is just surface level. There's something deeper going on in my life that results in this anger. Most of my anger, when it manifests itself in my life, is a result of my desire to be in control. The control, the vision and plan for my life to build my kingdom, where my preferences are laws. And when things don't go my way, I have the right to get upset. I have the right to demand justice. That's what's going on with Jonah here, too. He's demanding justice. He's demanding God do something because you took this thing away in my life. But see, what God's doing is what he always does. He's redeeming and rescuing. See, God appointed the storm and the fish to save Jonah's life, and now God appoints the plant and the worm and the wind to confront and save Jonah from his anger, to save Jonah from himself. Maybe God has done this in your life. Maybe God is doing this in your life right now. And if he hasn't or isn't, he will. God God will bring the plants. God will bring the worm. God will bring the wind into your life because he cares for you. And he cares for your soul. And he desires the advancement of his global glory. But when those moments come, when God appoints something difficult in your life, the question is, what will you do with it? God Ask Jonah, do you do well to be angry over the plant? And Jonah is emphatic, yes, angry enough to die. So when the worm and wind comes your way by the very hand of God, are you able to see that he has a greater purpose for that, even if in the moment you don't know exactly what it is? Let's go a little bit deeper, ask a little bit of a deeper heart level question. Why, if you do, why do you love God? Why would anyone love God? God, is it only because of what he can give you or what he does give to you? Because if that, if you're really honest with yourself, if that's why you love God, then what's going to happen if he takes that away from you? Does your love for him become questionable? 
See, it's in the challenging moments of withered vines in our lives that what we really believe about God comes to the forefront. Do you believe God is enough? If he takes everything else away from you, do you believe that he's enough? Can you actually say that and mean that in those moments? But it's in those moments when God seeks to readjust our vision to, to help us to see clearly that we can actually come back to that which is most glorious in our lives. See, the worst possible thing that could happen to you is not anything in this life. It's what can happen in all eternity. That because of your sin, because of your rebellion against God, that you would be separated from God, enduring his righteous wrath for all of your sin and rebellion. But as one pastor says, Christ Christ endured the worm and the wind so you could be brought into an eternity under God's vine. See, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that is only possible in and through Jesus' perfect life and his finished work on the cross and his glorious resurrection from the grave. A life and death that when we receive it by faith gives us new eyes to see that life is more than shade vines. Listen, church, there will be times when you and I will be able to confess Jesus with joyful hearts, with hands lifted. And there will be times when you and I will confess Jesus through clenching teeth and flowing tears. Then we really can stop in those moments. And God will give us opportunity for both. We can stop in those moments and still say Jesus is Lord and God is enough. One pastor says, by loving Christ, still in pain that is hard to bear and in mysteries you may never understand, you contribute to the advance of Christ's kingdom in more ways than you know. Cynics are unsettled. Believers are strengthened. Heaven rejoices and hell shudders in consternation. See, all of us are on a journey in one of two directions. We're either growing in love for God more or we're growing more and more in disenchantment. So when the tests and the trials come, which direction will you head? And see, even in those moments, we need to know that God might wreck our dreams to get to our heart. He might wreck our dreams to get to our heart and help us to see that there's something bigger, there's something more grand than anything you could imagine or cook up on your own. Not bigger from the world's perspective. Not bigger in the sense that it's going to give you more comfort or give you more pleasure in this life or more ease. Bigger and that God is the one leading and God is the one writing the story and you get to be a part of it. Recently, I don't know how many of you follow sports, but recently Kyrie Irving, the guard for the Cleveland Cavaliers, had an interview, and he said something in the interview that made headlines, and I'll quote him on this. He says, this is not even a conspiracy theory. The earth is flat. The earth is flat. It's right in front of our faces. I'm telling you, it's right in front of our faces. They lie to us. Now, we could sit and debate about why Kyrie Irving thinks this is the case, but he said something in there that's really telling to us, right? It's right in front of our faces. It looks flat, so it must be. But see, when you and I have a myopic vision to life, we see things, we perceive things to be true that we know are not actually true if we would just step back and take a look at the big picture. 
See, the story of Jonah is about God's passion for the world, and you and I will not have a passion for the world. We will not have a passion for our neighbors and the nations if we are living a myopic life. If we have a vine-focused, self-focused life, we won't be able to see all that God's doing. See, God is seeking to rescue Jonah from a myopic vision so that he might have a majestic vision, which leads to our next point. See, God responds to Jonah's vision, this myopic, self-focused vision and heart. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Jonah, you care about this plant this thing that has come into your life and out of your life so quickly, should I not, I, should I not pity Nineveh, this city, this great city of 120,000 plus people and this livestock? Jonah, you care about a plant. Do you at least care about some cows? I mean, come on. These people, these people who don't know their right hand from their left. And here's our idiom again. These people, what he's saying to these people who are morally and spiritually unaware, they are blind to their own blindness. They don't realize where they're at. They're on a train track going forward with signs along the way saying bridge out ahead and they just keep trucking along. You care about a plant? And you don't care about them? See, this is the state of every person apart from God's intervention and infusion of grace. We are blind to our sin. We are enslaved by our sin, and we are dead in our sin. And God so cares for them in their blind, enslaved, dead state that he sent a messenger to them to tell them to turn away from their sin and turn to him in faith. See, in this moment, God is trying to lift Jonah's gaze off of himself. He's trying to lift Jonah's gaze onto something more majestic and magnificent. Jonah, you care about a plant, and I care about the world. I care about all of my creation and bringing redemption to all people. It's a display of insane, undeserved compassion. A world that deserves judgment, a world that deserves death for its rebellion is given an opportunity to receive grace and life from a majestic and merciful God. See, we exist in a day where there's a kind of Christianity in our country, in our culture, that is a a Christianity that's angry with the sinful world. We look at the world around us in in our country and we see people sinning and we get angry about that. We get angry at things going around in our world right now. We're just angry over that sin. But there's also a real Christianity, a true Christianity that's rooted and based on Jesus and his ways, that's compassionate towards a sinful world. See, Jesus showed his compassion when he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus showed his compassion when he said, I didn't come for those who think they're well, I came for those who are sick. Jesus showed his compassion as he willingly died for a world that didn't give a rip about him. And hanging on the cross, he looked out and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, compassion isn't feeling sorry for someone. It's taking action to relieve their distress. To actually see redeeming love reach those people just like it reached you. The word majestic means 
that something is lofty or grand. It's magnificent, regal, royal, marvelous, exalted out of this world. So listen to this. Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all of the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That is a majestic vision. That's what God is trying to let Jonah see to he'd get a grasp around that, and that's what I want you to see too. That's the kind of vision I want you to have as well. Because when you have a majestic vision, when you can see the myriads and myriads of people before the throne of God worshiping him for all eternity, and that includes you, when you can see that it leads to a God-centered life where everything in your life is oriented around who God is and what he calls you to in in, in this life, to live for his glory and not your own And the result of that is an increased love for God and others that overflows with compassion towards those who have not yet believed or maybe have not even yet heard that there's good news for them too. Sojourn, in this story of Jonah, we have to see that God comes after us in a radical way to captivate our hearts with his radical nature and to then catapult us out with his radical vision for our lives in this world. That though you were utterly and completely dead in your sin, God had made a way to ransom your life and set you free and make you brand new. And now he calls you. He allows you to be a part of spreading this good news to the ends of the earth, to all people. This majestic vision is a radical endeavor because it makes absolutely no, no sense to the world that anyone should be saved. But it's also radical in nature because the reality at least for the american church is that we are made up of a lot of disenchanted followers with a myopic vision it's radical because what should be ordinary for us has become abnormal mission and mercy giving and serving sacrificing scheming for the advancement of god's global glory the church has become a place to meet our needs and our preferences that when we don't like the music or the sermon or we have a conflict with someone that we run. That if someone's not seeking to advance your myopic vision, then you're not sure you want to be there anymore. Instead of being a mission-sending agency that calls you out of your complacency, that calls you out of your discomfort and says, we've got work to do. There's a vision before us to go and reach people. And that's going to require something from you. See, too often our hearts and our heads are stuck looking down at our lives and our screens instead of looking up at the heavens and being in awe of the God who made us and loved us, who saves us and sends us. One pastor gives us a sobering assessment of the church. He said, in every church, there are people who are working and people who are watching. Some 
like the king of Nineveh, extend themselves in the hope of making a difference. Others, like Jonah, indulge their private arguments with God and position themselves as observers while the eternal future of thousands hangs in the balance. Hearts grow cold on the sidelines. So follow the example of the king. Get involved in what God is doing. The pastor goes on to say, choose the company of those who are working rather than the comfort of those who are watching. It's the difference between a myopic vision and a majestic vision. Now something interesting about this story is that it ends with a question. There's no resolution. We don't know what happens with Jonah. There's lots of speculation. It's probably likely that Jonah wrote this book. So maybe there's some later repentance that he comes to. But it ends with a question. It ends unresolved. And part of that is because that question's for you. Because you and I are Jonah. The question's for you. What are you going to do about this? We struggle with disenchantment. We struggle with self-focus all the time. Do you do well to be angry? Do we care like God does for the 1.2 million people in Fairfax County? Do we care like God does for the 35,000 students at George Mason University? Do we care like God does for the middle school and high school students at Frost Middle School and Lanier Middle School and Woodson and Robinson and Lake Braddock and Oakton and Fairfax High School? Do we care for them like God does? Do we care about the people that are different than you? that look different than you, that have a different background or lifestyle? Do we care like God does for the 6.4 billion people in our world right now that don't know that there's good news for them? That Jesus came to seek and to save them. Do we care about that? Or can we not see what's right before our very eyes if all we're focused on is right before our very eyes? Sojourn, you were made for something more than what this world offers you. And maybe that's where we just need to wrap our minds around that, the truth this morning, our hearts around that, that you were actually made for something majestic. You were made for something grand. See, a myopic vision doesn't require faith, but a majestic vision does. A myopic vision is like us walking through the streets, well-ordered streets with street signs and house numbers and building numbers. It's very predictable. We know where we're going. We don't have to rely on a whole lot else because everything's been set up for us. But a majestic vision is like wandering in the wild. We don't know what's right around the corner, but we know who is going with us, who goes before us and with us and behind us. We know what God is doing, that he's redeeming the world. We just don't always know how he's going to go about doing that. We know Jesus has called us to go and make disciples, but like God called Abraham, Jesus calls you to go, and he doesn't always tell you what the next step is, but he does tell you he's going to go with you. See, when we strive to live with a majestic vision instead of a myopic vision, the ordinary moments of life can be extraordinary moments because we know that in them God is at work. So whether you're in the marketplace or the classroom or at home with your kids, because listen, just because it's mundane doesn't mean it's any less majestic. Just because something you do is mundane does not mean it's any less majestic. The difference is where your focus is. Because see, in the mundane, there are moments and minutes of awe. If you will but lift your eyes and adjust the gaze of your heart and see the majesty of a God who loves you and sends you to enjoy the glo- his glory and s- to spread his glory here and now 
At the same time that you're longing and waiting for his return, the culmination of his good plan and purpose is to restore harmony and peace and shalom once again. Oh, church, that we would wake up, that I would wake up, that you would wake up from our sleepy lives of dissatisfaction and vain glory and actually behold true glory, that we would wake up, that we would stop messing around with trinkets and trash, and instead that we would take hold of that which is eternal, that we would see with new eyes the riches of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. One pastor said there that self-absorbed, self-absorbed Christianity is an oxymoron. Self-absorbed Christianity is an oxymoron. And listen, I don't want you to be an oxymoron. I don't want that to be true for your life or mine. But instead, by the radical grace and nature of God, that your heart would be reanimated. It'd beat rapidly and wildly out of your chest with zeal for God and his glory. That every time you wake, every time you eat, every time you breathe another breath, that what would be on your mind would be that's grace. Grace upon grace that God gives to you. And what happens when you start to do this, when you have this majestic vision, is that your smallness, your finiteness, gets swallowed up in God's God's largeness. His eternality, his majesty. And when that happens, the dust of disenchantment becomes a distant memory, no longer a present reality. And who knows, who knows, just maybe, maybe in that moment, revival breaks out in your heart. And as it breaks out in your heart, it overflows out in your life and out into the streets. See, my hope and desire as your pastor is never, never to stand up here and wave a tiny finger at you telling you to do better, to clean up your life, to look good, to just give you even more information. We didn't plant this church four and a half years ago for that. Oh, I want you to see the greatness of God, how incomprehensible God is, is yet accessible, how wide and deep his love is, how far his grace flows, how complete are his plans and purposes for your life. I want you to know him. I want you to know him, him who knows you, knows everything about you and calls you and beckons you by name and sends you and is worthy of all of your worship and worthy of all of your life, everything all of your time, all of your talents and abilities, everything that you call valuable, all of your resources, that God is worthy of all of it. I want you to have a majestic vision, to break out of the shell of your myopia, to be able to actually see beyond yourself. We didn't plant this church here to just focus on ourselves. We plan this church here because we want to see people get saved. We want to see disciples made of our neighbors and the nations. We want to see the glory of God advance from this place. And it doesn't matter if there's five people in this room or 500 people in this room. That's what God has called us to. And that's for you. If you're already a follower of Jesus, you think you're a follower of Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus. Because today, you can place your faith in him. Today, you can turn from yourself and savor the grace and glory of God. You know, oftentimes we talk about kids in a culture today being desensitized to violence through media, but maybe, maybe we have become desensitized to glory. Maybe we can't see the forest for the trees. So as we close this series and this sermon, let me just ask you a few diagnostic questions for your heart. The first comes from a sage of the faith, and he says this, 
Is God skillfully shaping and wisely guiding your life? Or have you let your untutored whims and infantile sins reduce you to the lowest common denominator? Ask yourself, is this the way I want to spend the rest of my life? What is the vision for your life right now? Is it comfort? Pleasure? Is it just living for the next high in your life? Is it myopic or is it majestic? What is God calling you to? What is he calling you to? Have you ever just asked him that question? God, what do you want me to do? Where are you calling me to go? For some of you, that might mean getting on a plane and going overseas and giving your life to that. And I hope that that's the case. I hope there are people in this room that God will send out to the nations. But it might also be that God's just asking you to get up off your couch and walk across the street to your neighbor, to go out to lunch with your coworker, to talk to the person you sit next to every week in class. What is God calling you to? Sojourn, that we would behold the glory of the Lord, shake off the dust of disenchantment and embrace our radical God who has a radical calling on your life. And know this, that just because it's God's calling and it's this radical calling doesn't mean it's going to be neat and easy. It's going to be messy and difficult at times, but it's never going to be disappointing. And we're going to come to the table this morning. And as we come, we get a chance to lift our gaze and embrace a majestic vision that the God of this universe has made a way for you and me to be reconciled and restored to him. We partake of this meal every week, drinking the cup and eating the bread to help shake off the dust of disenchantment and embrace the reality of God's radical work in us and through us. The bread is a symbol of Christ's body broken for you. The cup is a symbol of Christ's blood shed for you. And so as you eat and drink today, be reminded that you were made for more than pleasure and comfort and things. You were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever and to tell the world that that's what they were made for too. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward this morning because this meal doesn't do anything for you. This bread and this cup doesn't save you. This is a testimony of the fact that we already believe this to be true, that Jesus had to die for our sin. And so if you don't yet know Christ, we want you to respond to his invitation to you. We want you to respond to grace today, to become a Christian today, that you would take Christ today. So you can pray and just ask God in your seat right now this morning that he would save you from your sin. And if you have questions about what that means, what that looks like, you want to have somebody walk with you in that? That's what we're here for. That's what this church and this community is here for. So let somebody know that. If you have questions about what it means, maybe you're not quite ready to make that decision to follow Jesus, then let somebody know that so that we can journey with you in that. For those of you that will come forward this morning, you can come to the front or towards the back. There'll be people there serving you this morning. They're going to speak what Jesus has done for you over your life as you take the bread and you take the cup this morning. And let's respond in worship that God saves us and now God sends us. Let's pray. Father God, we just pray. Majestic God, glorious God, amazing God, magnificent God. We pray that you would help us to have a majestic vision, that our eyes would not be set on us, 
That like John the Baptist, we would say that we need to decrease that you might increase. Father, would you show us by the power of your spirit this morning in our lives right now where we are focused on a a small detail of our lives. We have a myopic view of something in our lives right now. Would you help us to just be aware of that and then to repent of that and to behold the glory that you allow us to be a part of participating in and advancing. Father, we pray that you would do that work. Help us to shake off the dust of disenchantment in our lives, wherever it exists, that we might see and savor you, God. Bring revival in our hearts, and that would overflow in our community and out of this church into these streets, that more and more people might know the glorious good news of Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.